and naturopathic physicians take on the way forward with cancer and immune system treatments. That is today's show with Dr. Lucas Timms. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 311. I am thrilled to have uh, a doctor that I came across a few months ago on Instagram who shares so generously, so compassionately, and with so much uh, evidence base some of the window into how they treat patients at the Reardon Clinic in Kansas in America. So my guest is Dr. Lucas Timms. He's a naturopathic doctor. He is the medical director of Reardon Clinic and uh, he specializes in natural therapies for cancer care, the immune system, and more. And so in today's show, we actually explore quite a far-reaching topics, everything from the philosophical aspects of treatment uh, and patient care through to systems and system limitations, uh, as well as benefits uh, and uh, integrative versus uh, conventional, working them in together, as well as what uh, the integrative approach brings to the cancer journey for someone uh, with a diagnosis. Uh, we also talk a little bit about a few preventative things we can do um, after Lucas um, actually lays the stage for what kind of an environment has to be occurring in the body for cancer cells to pr proliferate. So I dug a little deeper there as well to give us what his biggest uh, insistence is in this uh, polluted modern world when it comes to prevention. So it's a big show. We go all sorts of places and I hope that it is as useful as it is for people navigating cancer right now, as well as people interested to learn a little bit more about the mechanisms, uh, and more about what's genetic, what's epigenetic, and what causes that epigenetic switch. So what are the biggest lifestyle and environmental drivers? And, uh, and then I hope uh, you think to share it with your friends and family who might be interested or need it. I love seeing ahas that people have when you share it on Instagram and I can share your ahas across to our community. I, I love that. So thank you so much to those of you who do it so often. I really appreciate it. It helps us get the word out. Now, speaking of getting the word out, we have two wonderful sponsors uh, who are supporting our show this week, Oz Climate, who are our major sponsors this year, you have 10% off their already discounted, uh, wonderful, um, <laughs> I'm umming and ahhing, I have to tell you this guys, rather than make it an outtake, because I just gave, gave my dog a new stick. 
<laughs> in the hope that I could get 10 minutes to record this intro and he's being a little noisy. So I apologize if you can hear that in the background, but I'm hoping my microphone is that good that it's actually not so bad, but it is distracting me. Anyway, so back to Oz Climate. If you haven't considered an air filter to address pollution and potential agricultural and environmental concerns that you have, depending on the different types of places you live, I highly recommend checking out the Winix range. And then if you are somewhere where the humidity goes above 60% on a regular basis, and you can check your indoor air humidity with a hygrometer, uh, then I highly recommend investing in dehumidifiers. They are the single best way to keep the humidity down in indoor environments uh, when you might not have water damage per se, but you might be living somewhere where it's raining a lot, or you might be needing that humidity to be brought down uh, because you live somewhere tropical. It's unbelievable how much of a game changer a couple of dehumidifiers around the house can be. And people always message me and say, I can't believe that thing filled up twice in a day. Uh, And then cushions start to feel drier. You start to feel less sticky inside. And that means mold does not have a chance to grow. So we have that as an offer. And we also have solid techniques, multi-century low-tox cookware and utensils. If you spend over over $279, which if you're buying one really good saucepan or a great baking tray uh, or, you know, some of their pots, frying pans, they have a huge range now of multi-century cookware, as I said. So this is going to last your lifetime and the lifetime of several generations after you. So it's an incredible investment and you will get a free 18-centimeter Oz Iron pan worth just under $100 and the offer runs until midnight, Sunday, 18th of December for the Aussies. Your code is LOWTOX and I've got all the details in the show notes. That's it from me, folks. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lucas to the show uh, and let's talk cancer and the future. Hello, Dr. Lucas. How are you doing? Doing well, Alex. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. We had a wonderful Uh, local naturopath, uh, Carla Wren, who is very passionate about the uh, integrative value add in the oncology journey. And you have been a naturopathic physician working in this space for a really long time in the US. Uh, And I want to start by asking you, because I'm always fascinated about the people who end up in integrative and naturopathic or um, holistic care, what was growing up like for you? Were you like organic and hippie parents or was it a, a born again self-discovery journey to see this whole other side of, of health and, and well-being? Yeah, very, very much the former uh, mm-hmm. in Lucky terms you. of, uh, you know, my parents were, I, I guess you could say they were hippies. Um, they were very much of that movement and uh, very into health and wellness and nutrition and kind of the, at that time, the macrobiotic movement, uh, was sort of, uh, was sort of a big thing and they were both very bought into that. And so that was part of our upbringing. And yeah, I, I was the kid in elementary school with, you know, 
the hummus and sprouts and <laughs> and brown you know, rice, yeah, all the weird looking <laughs> stuff that none of the other kids were eating. And uh, so it was interesting as a, as a kid. But, you know, we just we didn't have junk in our house. Um, not to say that we didn't ever get that stuff, but it was um, it wasn't the norm. And so, uh, yeah, it was part of my upbringing and sort of, you know, laid the, the foundation for, I think, ultimately where my life has taken me my career. Mm. And so medicine, were you always knowing you wanted to help people and then it was just a matter of finding out how that was going to look for you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, formative years and, uh, you know, you know, I think through high school and college, like I, I would have never considered myself a really like, I was not the like straight A student. Uh, but I was very curious and I was uh, very inquisitive and especially when it came to like science and like the way the world works and just nature and all that stuff. Like I was very into that stuff, but like I was not, you know, a straight A student um, like most of the like pre-med students that you would see. Right. And so yeah, I was uh, going to say, so how does that play out then? Because you would have been either telling yourself a negative story about not being good enough or other people would have been doing that for you. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of both. Um, mm. cause you know, back then, um, it was, you know, there was like sort of a whole bias around like, Oh, you know, all the smart kids either go on to become, doctors or lawyers or whatever right mm. specialist engineers and so uh, not not that i wasn't smart i had good grades i'm just saying i wasn't like in all the ap honors classes and stuff like that where you see those types of kids where it's like almost like their future is determined already yeah it's foregone conclusion yeah yeah and so uh i would say probably you know i ended up staying uh, in the town i grew up in in arkansas and going to the university of arkansas for my undergraduate studies and um, I had some encounters the first couple of years I was there. I didn't really actually the first year I was there, I declared as an architecture um, major. I thought I wanted to go into architecture. I was very into that. But a couple of courses and studies I had, some teachers, some mentors and some experiences I had led me more towards the field of medicine, um, ended up uh, uh, majoring in microbiology, spent a lot of time in labs in, in undergraduate and um, pretty much by my third year of college, knew that that medicine was going to be my future. It was just a matter at that point of figuring out um, what kind of medicine I really wanted to do. Obviously, coming from a, the background we talked about, a very health-oriented background, but then also having spent some time with some family friends who were traditional doctors and got to see kind of their day-to-day -day life and was like, oh, this is very different than what I, what I'm interested in, in terms of medicine. And so, um, became a little bit jaded with just traditional medicine. And that sort of led me to looking at alternative medicine, uh, pathways, um, looked at DO schools, which are osteopathic schools. I don't know if you guys have those yeah. in Australia, but similar. Yeah. Similar. I mean, there was at least some more of a, uh, a mindset or, a or, a an ethos with the osteopathic schools where it was more about a holistic, you know, look at the body and everything's connected. But, you know, when I started looking down that path, it still led to the same outcome of, Oh, this is like, we do drugs and surgery. You know, that's basically, you know, the, the, the end point of that sort of a practice. And so 
got kind of jaded there as well, but eventually I stumbled upon naturopathic medicine and, um, uh, and went and visited the schools and it was just almost like a light switch went off when I was, was there and, you know, learning about how, yeah, you know, you can, you're going to learn all the things that you will learn in allopathic and osteopathic medical school about how the body works. You're even going to learn about pharmaceuticals and drugs and some minor surgery techniques. But in addition to that, we're also going to teach you about nutrition and holistic medicine, homeopathy, um, you know, things like IV therapies and um, how to actually deal with root cause issues of illness. And so that just spoke to me. And, you know, it was almost like a no brainer at that point. I was like, I know this is what I want to do. Applied for several of the naturopathic programs, ended up in Arizona, which was really ultimately where I was meant to be. Cause that's where everything unfolded for me in terms of where I'm at today. Met my wife there, um, met people who guided me towards wanting to work in cancer care in oncology. And so everything from there has almost felt like it's just, it's like one experience after another of like, this is how I'm supposed to be. This is what my life's about. And so it was very, it was very, uh, you know, while there was a few years there before I got to natural medical school where I didn't quite know where I was doing and I was kind of felt a little lost. Once I got started on that track, everything fell into place. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And, uh, and I guess, I'm curious to know, was was there a personal lever that then pushed you to oncology uh, or was it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there was. And I've talked about this in, in a lot of other, um, you know, online platforms and other podcasts I've done. But, um, you know, my, my wife, mm. uh, uh, when I met her, when we first started dating shortly after, um, she, she was diagnosed with cancer at a very young age and uh, 25, actually. Wow. And, um, you know, nowadays, uh, we'll probably talk about this a little more as we get into it, but nowadays I'm seeing way more 20 and 30 year olds in my office. But back then it was like, you know, she was the one in the, in the, the really unlucky office. one. Yeah. Everyone was looking at her like, what is she doing here? You know? So it was, um, it was a shock to the system for her. And obviously for me, um, you know, at that time we had, you know, we're very early on in our relationship. Um, but, um, still very, you know, committed and, and I'm in middle of medical school and she's working as a therapist. And then we're also going through this cancer journey for her again, uh, together. And, and, uh, that, that journey with her, that phase of our lives, um, was what ultimately, you know, kind of planted the seed for me to want to work with, uh, to work in the field of oncology because, uh, not, not because, uh, it, um, not because of all the good things that I saw, but because of all the areas where I looked at and said, there's got to be more to it. This, this can't be all there is. Um, there's so many things that are missing in this, in this, in this process of working with people with cancer. And I'm like, you know, we almost, we would go home from visits and treatments together and be like, you know, where's the talk about, uh, we, we talked about the disease, but where's the talk about creating health? you know? And so it was just, it was this gaping hole that, that we saw from our end and our lens, but it was almost like, you know, you couldn't bring those things up when you talk to the oncologist, they don't want to, they really would, you know, um, 
shut either shut you down right away or they were to say, yeah, we don't really know. Um, you know, I, I can't answer those questions for you. Yeah, it's so, interesting, isn't it? Uh, I remember when um, before I finally figured out I had SIRS, uh, I had 37 symptoms. I was going to all these specialists, scans, et cetera. And I remember saying to the cardiologist who had ultimately said, there's nothing wrong with your heart, even though there were just so many things wrong with my heart. I could feel it. I was in my body. And um, I remember saying, it feels like when I take vitamin E and alpha lipoic acid, I'm just having a play, you know, reading any papers that might help. It feels like my heart calms down a bit. Can you help me work through the research? And it was very much a, I can't answer questions on that. And, and I feel compassion for that in a way because that means that person is is trapped to within an inch of their own understanding and practice of a way to move forward with a patient. And that can't feel good. And in naturopathic medicine, you guys seem to have a lot more freedom to explore with a patient and, and really uh, come up with a, a way to move forward with all things considered. Yeah. And that was honestly what attracted me so much to the field of naturopathic medicine was that freedom um, to be creative and that freedom to uh, ask questions. Uh, because to me, that's, that's what I like to do is I like to always question, why is this working this way? What can we do better? Like, how else can we approach things? And those questions, like, yes, they're being asked in traditional medicine, but it's more so like, oh yeah, the, the PhDs do that stuff in the lab. You know, we, we get told by the drug companies and these medical societies, what our guidelines are. And then most of your doctors that you see on the front line day in and day out, they're really just what I would call proceduralists, meaning they're just, they're following algorithms and carrying out procedures and policies. And there's not a lot of creativity or, or art going on in, in that style of medicine. Um, and so that's where naturopathic medicine was very appealing to me. Uh, we're, we're not tethered to this, uh, insurance monster. Uh, we're not tethered to, uh, only, you know, a certain set of guidelines. We have guiding principles and we have uh, a certain collective understanding of what works and what doesn't, but there's a lot of room for us to explore different tools, different approaches, and also, allow space for patients to be what I like to refer to as an N of one, an experiment in and of themselves. Because as we know now, and as we're learning more about uh, our bodies and chronic diseases and health, everybody's so different. We all are human. Yes. But in terms of even cancer, if you look at say a hundred, hundred women with breast cancer, all the same stage and characteristics and demographics, and, but if you look at them through our lens of the terrain and all that, which we'll talk about, they all look different. Mm. Yeah, all. And and so let's let's start to unpack that then. Um, the terrain, the environment of the body internally, and how cancer might proliferate in certain individuals. I mean, we've been told genetics. We've been told, you know, now we're starting to understand like really nasty environments or even trauma is is in the conversation now held in the body. Um, what do you feel like we know for sure in terms of the environment in which cancer is allowed to proliferate in a body? 
What do we know for sure? I don't know if we know anything for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the first to admit that. But yeah. what, what I can tell you um, from my experience and from looking at cancer as a, as a metabolic disease rather than as a spontaneous genetic disease, um, we know that cancer is a product of the environment. Okay. All of your cells, believe it or not, all of our cells can potentially become cancerous. Okay. Every cell in your body can potentially be de-evolved to the point where they are forced into a cancerous state. Okay. And what, what creates that domino effect that leads to that cell being forced into that state is what we call the terrain or the, the, you know, the holistic health of the body. Okay. Yeah. And so when you look at things through that lens uh, of understanding of, of, of what's going on with cancer uh, and realize that the genetic mutations and, and SNPs and, and pathways that are hijacked, these are the mechanisms, but they're not the causes. The causes are the, the milieu or the landscape or the terrain that's going on, which these cells are being exposed to. And, you know, there's, we've got several, you know, lists of known cancer causing things in our environment. Some of them chemical, some of them biological. We've got more information as far as possible mental, emotional, spiritual things that could be impacting that level as well. Um, but it's almost like there's, there's a disconnect in the modern cancer industry where we're completely like we're ignoring the fact that there are things that we know cause cancer and we're not starting there. We're starting at, Oh, the genetics are mutated. And, and this, this cell is behaving this way. And so we need to kill this cell rather than saying, well, that's interesting. These cells are running this cancer program. Let's look at what's causing that. And let's, let's try to maybe work on that level a little bit more. And so to me, it's, it's more of a zoom out. It's more of a big vision uh, uh, approach. You know, we've gotten so reductionistic with, with cancer that we're focusing on these genes and these gene mutations and SNPs. And it's like, that's such a microscopic level that we're missing the forest for the trees. Yeah. So genetically, we're not, it's not a foregone conclusion. You have to add things to the genetic soup, let's say, for things to really kick into gear. Yeah. And, you know, there's, it's not just one, it's not like one genetic mutation or one piece of your DNA gets damaged and that becomes cancer. Like it actually, it's more so you need multiple hits. Mm. Some cancers, you need up to 11 mutations in order to tip it over the tip, those cells over the edge. Um, so it's, it's not black and white. There's not like a definitive cutoff point with that stuff. And the other, the other thing that makes it even more complex is that if we knew, okay, let's say everybody that smokes get, gets lung cancer. If that was true, it'd make things a lot easier. But guess yeah. what? Not everybody that smokes gets lung cancer. Okay. There's actually, it's only about a 30 to 35% lifetime risk of getting cancer for someone who smokes about a pack a day. Mm. There's a lot of people smoking a lot of cigarettes out there that are not getting lung cancer. 
Yeah. Okay? Wow. I'm not saying I'm not giving anybody a pass on that. Obviously. I'm not letting my mom listen to this. She always Obviously, says, when I'm 75, smoke. it's the home stretch. I'm going to take it up again. Right. But we, but I mean, we all know people that smoke and don't have lung cancer, right? Yeah, we do. We yeah. know some people that have smoked all their lives and have, mm. and, and don't have cancer. And so it's not as simple as the, the exposure. The other part of that is how well does our body do our bodies individually handling those exposure, those toxins, those carcinogens. And so um, some people are very good at running the DNA repair programs Mm -hmm. cellularly. Some people are not. Um, Some people are really good at detoxing stuff once they've been exposed to it. Other people are not. Um, and, And there's so many things that so many variables in the mix when it comes to how those things work in each individual um, so there, there is quite a complex web of, of things. It's not just as easy as saying, well, we have these carcinogens, we need to address these. But I think if we can start to focus on more the root causes, the carcinogens and not the genetic damage, we're going to find better results and better outcomes. And we may finally start to slow down this tidal wave of cancer incidents and cancer diagnosis that we're seeing, you know, worldwide. Mm, gosh, I mean, there is just so much to unpack there. We could go so many different directions after that. Um, okay, I feel like it would be interesting to have a look at the people that don't do so well at. So, like, let's talk about detoxification to start with and and let's actually focus on how we would create a positive preventative strategy if one knows one is a poor detoxifier. Let's start there because so many people think, oh, my God, any of my cells could turn cancerous at any point. That's a terrifying prospect with how we culturally feel the weight of the word cancer Um, as opposed to like, oh, you've got an autoimmune disease or, oh, you've got heart disease. Like you would hear heart disease and you'd be like, okay, so does that mean I need to start going for walks and take vegetables? You hear cancer and you think I'm going to die. This is the cultural acceptance of the weight of that word. And with the work that you do uh, and uh, health professionals like you, we just know so much about how that can not necessarily, of course, be the case. So from a preventative um, let's decrease our chances. What would we do then if we are poor detoxifiers? Well, um, first of all, we need to um, help people understand that detox is something you should be doing every day. Mm. So the, the brigade that then comes out and says, that's what our liver's for. I don't need to detox. What do right. we say to those people? Um I, I, to that, I would maybe come back with a, with a, with a bit of a snarky response as to like, <laughs> well, that's like saying we have muscles, so we don't need to exercise. Um, so there's one thing about having an organ system in your body that potentially can do stuff, but there's a, a, a whole nother conversation around, okay, if, if we're not giving the right inputs to the body, if we're not um, exercising and doing things that help those organ systems to stay functional and lean and healthy, you know, these things, you know, they're going to collect dust. They're not going to work as well. And then, and then we've got 
if we if we existed, you know, in a world where there was no environmental exposures, no toxins, yeah, you could say, well, you know, the the liver is going to handle what it can. It's you know, we don't need to be doing anything to support that. But you know, the fact of the matter is, is that we're exposed to anywhere from three hundred to five hundred chemicals every day. Not all those are cancer causing chemicals, but chem man made chemicals things that can cause and, and contribute to disease and put a load on that liver and the other organs of detoxification. So, I, yeah, I say the exact same thing. I say, well, the year is 2022. Yes. yes. <laughs> we are not just trying to avoid the poisonous berries now. We've actually got a whole <laughs> bunch of other stuff going on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you, uh, we, we have to step up our game because of the environment that we find ourselves in. Mm. And, um, and so that's what I would say to those people, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, if we don't have our pathways of elimination, if let's just start at the point where everyone's pathways of elimination need to be moving on a daily basis. So what does that mm -hmm. look like? You're having a good bowel moon every day. Yeah. Talk to a lot of people that don't go a week without having a bowel. Moon. Wow. Okay. You're doing something to to sweat or move your body on a daily basis. That could be exercise. That could be sitting in a sauna. That could be taking a hot bath. But something to generate heat, open up the pores, and allow things to release from that from that part of your body. Skin is the number one organ of detoxification as well as absorption. So that one is a big one that people miss. And then making sure that we're flushing the fluids of our body as much as possible as well. So not getting dehydrated, not consuming beverages that clog things up, but consuming things that flush things out. And so, uh, and then the last one that doesn't get talked about enough is proper breathing. Okay. And, and because those are the four main ways that things actually get out of our body. Um, and so, you know, it's akin to like having a home that, you know, if, if, if you just let trash and clutter and stuff build up, you know, you've probably seen some of these uh, hoarder shows. I mean, <laughs> oh my goodness. It's, yeah. That's it. That's what's happening in your body. That's what's happening your in the body. Ways of elimination are not moving. Good analogy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. Yeah. Those shows where they, they open up a room and then it's, like <laughs> it's horrifying. It's horrifying. It gives me anxiety just watching yeah. it. And so and yeah. there's pr probably people sitting there getting that same reaction to watching those shows that have that going on in their body at that time. Mm. And so we need yeah, to you think, uh, Yeah, it's absolutely right. You watch the hoarder show while you're eating the chips and drinking the soda. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Putting those down, having your ciggy and <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. And not exercising, sedentary, mm -hmm. you know, enough, not enough fiber. And so all the things that, you know, our bodies, we're not really, most people are not giving the body the basic biological requirements it needs. Let's just, let's just say that because our modern day culture and the culture of convenience and the culture of order everything from an app on your phone to, you know, binge watch TV and quick fast food and convenience and, you know, in our own bubbles, this is not, this is not the way the human being was designed. Mm. And yeah, the, the word progress is so interesting to me in that context, because if you take a step back from it, you think, okay, so how is that progress? And yeah, it's amazing it's that a guy can turn up and pick up my shirts and deliver them back press that afternoon. 
that's pretty cool. But the the elements that we're then compensating and thinking immediacy is great in every area um, because we're, it allows we're, we're us de- to. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're de-evolving. We and are. that is the connection between what's going on with cancer. The cancer mm. cell is a de-evolved cell. Mm. And so there's, there's a metaphor and a parallel there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think collectively, um, you know, our species is, is just as, is at risk for a collective cancer as our bodies are of a cancer inside of them. And so it's it, all the parallels are there. Uh, and uh, so one thing I would say for people is, you know, you have to make sure that you're removing these things that cause the environment in your body to, to, to set the landscape for, for, for these cells to de-evolve because what, what keeps these cells from going down that pathway are all these protective mechanisms. They're called tumor suppressor genes. Basically, if you want to get down to the genetic level, these tumor suppressor genes are programs that have been laid on by evolution to protect those cells, to not revert back to a single cell organism, basically. And uh, that's where the epigenetics come into play. And this is basically everything that we have in our environment, what we eat, what we drink, what we breathe, what we consume, the people we spend time with, all of that um, is what's either positively influencing or negatively influencing these things that are protecting the DNA of our cells so that they can continue to evolve and not devolve. Mm, Absolutely. Um, I feel like from, from what we've talked about so far, one of the tricky aspects, probably one of why cancer care has become so compartmentalized and proceduralized is because we have this drive to create a definable thing and, uh, kill it, beat it, win. Like it's like the war mentality, um, has taken over the medical profession. Um, we're winning wars on uh, diseases that we can put in a box, name, treat, diagnose, and cure. And naturopathic medicine isn't afraid to blur the lines, create big grey areas, add in extra components and factors and and dig deeper to not just uh, treat, diagnose, and cure, hopefully cure, um, but also set a stage for um, avoiding a repeat performance. Yeah. Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of great points there. Um, we are very much sort of um, seduced by that, like you said, diagnose, treat, cure, move on, next customer, kind of my mentality with, with mm. our medical model, because that's exactly what it's designed to be. It's designed yeah. to be a business. Mm. Most people don't realize that at least in the U S I mean, I don't, I know you guys have a little bit more of a, uh, a socialized program, correct? We do. Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah very lucky. So, uh, but here in the U S you know, there's a lot of things that, that there's a lot of good things that come from a capitalistic society and, and innovation and, and progress and all that. And I'm not saying that there's not some good things, but from a medical model standpoint, uh, it's, it's basically um, created this, mm. this for-profit monster that, you know, it's not about health. It's not about the outcomes. If it were, 
you know, if, if, if spending more money and getting the latest and greatest treatments were all about health, then we wouldn't, the U S would not be ranked 49th in the world in terms mm-hmm. of health outcomes, but we spend 10 times more than anybody else. Yeah. So it ain't working. It ain't uh, working. It, it ain't working. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I heard it, uh, I heard an analogy, um, somewhere the other day, I can't remember what, well, it was social media somewhere. And it, it was like, Oh, this, this makes sense is that our current system is like, if you could imagine uh, this cliff and people are just lining up and just walking over this cliff and falling off this cliff one after another, um, our medical system is basically just a bunch of ambulances and paramedics and stuff sitting at the bottom of the cliff, waiting for the people to land so they can rush them off to the hospital and try to save their life real quick and then send them back. Um, But you know, true healthcare would be setting up barriers at the top of the cliff to help yeah. stop people from falling off. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're wa- we're waiting for the shit to hit the fan. Excuse my language. Um, to go. Oh, okay. Here's something I need to deal with instead of um, yeah, not having that happen in the first place. Uh, environment seems to be finally um, moving into the forefront of people's minds. Uh, I even said to our regular GP the other day, I was giving a TED talk and I had a blocked ear. I'm like, okay, I really need to not have a blocked ear by Sunday because I'm giving a TED talk. And he goes, oh, yeah, what's the talk on? I said, mold. And uh, he was like, oh, thank God. And I was like, really? Because <laughs> this is just like, you know, your regular person that you go to like do the do the things when they come up, have have this, yeah. Hey, and um, you know what we I'm need those about. people. To, we we need those absolutely people. need those people. Yes. Yeah, I love him. He's so compassionate and wonderful. And I I had just given up talking about Sir's mold, having to move house because my son's nose was bleeding. Like people just didn't know what to do with that information in an allopathic context, and they didn't they didn't have anything that could help us. So that's, I had, not the, that's not in their algorithm. Exactly. So for years I hadn't even brought it up, but because he asked me what the topic was and I said so, he said, oh, my gosh, thank God. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, people come to us and we just have nothing to do for them and it's really hurting my spirit. You know, he's a mental health practitioner as well um, from his postgrad and, 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 he said, is your talk about like raising awareness for how big the problem is? <laughs> That's exactly what the talk is about through my own personal horrific journey. And he said, Let, I just, I can't wait to hear it and share it with patients to hopefully help them when we can't. And I mean, that's the situation that a lot of doctors find themselves in out there. And Well, and mold's a perfect, you know, topic to zoom in on because mm. you know, we were talking about how, you know, it's not always just about the exposure. I mean, we know that about 30% of the population can't clear mold. Mm. So they, you know, they may not be exposed to that much compared to the next person that maybe lived, you know, grew up in a home full of mold, but, you know, their body processed it pretty good. Yeah. So that's where a lot of that bio-individuality comes in. Mm, absolutely. And and so what we talk about detoxifying, but then if you look at, um, say, HLA, DRDQ genes, you then have the different SNPs and the different things that each of those different SNPs tend to have a propensity to not be able to detoxify, uh, which is fascinating to me that we know this much now and that it's going to take so long to actually start helping people on a broader scale. On a mass scale, for sure. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So 
Can I ask you then, uh, you know, let's talk about, say, mould, other environmental factors like biotoxins like ticks. What do you see in a, a patient that comes to you? What kind of tests are you running to start seeing what some of these ingredients in that person's soup are to know how not only to work with the cancer that you see before you, but also set a better stage within them internally? Yeah. That's exactly what we try to do. And the testing is, you know, I I could probably stumble upon some success stories uh, if I didn't do any testing, but the testing is what allows us to really put together a, a strategic customized plan for each person. Because, you know, you probably heard this old saying, test, don't guess. Well, you know, we, we have so many great tests out there now when it comes to environmental toxins. Uh, we, we screen all of our patients all of our cancer patients for about 60 different known carcinogens uh, and toxins. And so uh, it's usually not a matter of if we'll find something, it's a matter of how many different toxins we'll find in them. Mold is a very common one. Uh, Heavy metals are very common. Pesticides, plastics, chemicals, um, chemicals like benzene, chemicals in air pollution, chemicals in flame retardants. We, We find this stuff in a lot of our patients. And so um, once we know what the toxin loads are, and we also understand how those toxin loads are impacting the terrain of the body, whether it's metabolic or hormonal or immune suppression or inflammation, because those are kind of the, the dots you have to connect between the toxin, the mechanism, and then ultimately the disease, right? Because, you know, cancer is you know, you see some people with cancer, they don't have any inflammation in their body. And their, their, their picture is much more of a, uh, a hormonal disruption or an immune suppression. And, and so you have to figure out not only the exposure, the toxin or the root cause, but then the mechanism by which that's creating an unhealthy environment in the body. For that person. For that person. And this is where it can yeah, get wow. So, so you know those books that you give little kids for Christmas and it's like you flip all the pages, but the pages are like in three. And so you got the feet down the bottom, you got the tummy section, you got the face section. You can make like an infinite amount of different characters and combinations with these little books. And and kids love doing that, you know, age two and three. Um, it feels like this is what you have to do in practice. It if, does. It feels each like each individual that a lot character is a unique combination of factors. Yeah, everyone's everyone's a, a brand new puzzle to put together, which I mm. love. I love. I love doing puzzles. One of the things we do at the clinic here is in our break room. We always have a huge puzzle going. Oh my and, gosh, uh, love a good puzzle. So we staff, always do that too. Always, yeah, yeah. We're always working on puzzles, and I see I see patients that way, and um, you know, just like doing a puzzle, you know, you don't sit there and all of a sudden all the pieces just fit together nice and neat and you're done. It's like, there's a lot of, oh, this uh, this looks like it fits here. Oh no, it doesn't. We got to try this piece over here. And oh, that might fit here. So there's a lot of that that goes on in our in my practice. Um, but as you do more and more puzzles, you start to figure out sort of like, oh, I, you know, it works better when I set the pieces up and I first divvy them out into like, like, like looking pieces. And then I do the border first. And then I add in, the major pieces in the middle. So there's a process that we've found works uh, for each person, but the makeup of that puzzle for each person is going to look different. 
And that's where I tell people, like I mentioned earlier, it's like, I can line up 10 patients with your exact same cancer diagnosis and stage and demographics and everything. And guess what? From the traditional side, you would all 10 get the exact same treatment. But from our end, you're going to look like 10 completely different puzzles. Wow. And so you mentioned plastics and benzene. And I think we're not really talking about this enough in, um, in, it's a big yeah. problem. Yeah, right. Uh, I was interviewed um, by the gorgeous Dr. Nicole Birkins recently on her show. And, um, I, you know, we talked about fast food and junk food and processed food, sure. But then I talked about soft plastic packaging and, uh, you know, the, the implication of how those raw materials are processed and then how they're shipped and then they're in a factory and in plastic tubing and then there's the soft plastic that's usually quite hot, especially if it's a pouch-type food. Uh, you know, and then da, da, da. And she's like, I have never gone into that much detail on this. And it really blew quite a few people's minds on just how intertwined we are with plastic. Even if you eat healthy, uh, there are still a lot of like, say, paleo or keto health foods, plastic packaged uh, foods um, in these uh, fractionated diets as well that... Um, that still uh, bring these chemicals into our bodies. Which is why it's, you know, this stuff has become so ubiquitous, uh, whether it's plastics or, or benzenes or, or glyphosate or whatever. Uh, and so, yeah, we want to reduce exposure as much as possible. We have to realize you can't 100% avoid it, which is mm. why you have to commit to detoxing every day. Yeah. Absolutely. Only way you're going to stay ahead of it. Only mm. way you're going to stay ahead of it. Um, but yeah, plastics are nasty nasty chemicals uh they're they're xenoestrogens they're obesogens and they're carcinogens and um it's you know there's only i mean that is such a foreign material to our bodies doesn't know doesn't know what to do with it and so you know you see these people and you say oh well you know the livers the liver will take care of that right yeah well that's why we see fatty liver disease in non-alcoholics is because we're being exposed to all these other toxins. And the only way the liver knows how to deal with it is keep forming these fat bubbles around it to try to store it. You can only do that for so long before that causes metabolic dysfunction and then you're, you know, or cancer or whatever. And so, um, it's a domino effect, but, uh, but the plastics are really, really nasty, nasty, and they can be very hard to get out. Those are probably the toughest chemicals that we, uh, even though we eventually usually are able to get them out of people, it, it, they, they take longer than like mold or metals. Mm. Can you step us through a little bit about a little bit on how that actually looks getting the plastics the out? Detox process. Yeah. Well, you have to get the, um, you, you have to get the fat stores moving, uh, and you got to get these people sweating a lot. You have to get their, uh, their GI tract moving, uh, two to three times a day. So colonics or enemas or whatever. And then you have to put them on very high doses of binders. We usually have to use uh, ozone as well as an IV. Um, and, um, and even then, you know, it takes time. Uh, yeah. But you really got to get these, these, um, these escape route, these, these uh, uh, the exit. exit valves open yeah. in people. Uh, otherwise, you know, you start detoxing them and you make them sick. Mm. Yeah, that's it. You've got to have that plan for everything to be able to evacuate the so-called building. Um, 
Yeah. And a lot of times in cancer patients, you know, when they first come to us, they might not be in a position where we can really do that for them. Um, if they're in active treatment or, you know, in, in, a, in a phase of their journey where, you know, we can't be fighting both the, the chemo war and the detox war at once. And so that's where it gets even a little more tricky sometimes. Yeah. And, and is that then a, a prioritization planning? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's where each person, again, that's another layer of each person's puzzle is, you know, not just, oh, we found these issues, but how do we address these issues? Is the person capable of addressing these issues? And the timing, the sequencing of it, that's important too. And so it, it, it can get a little complex. Yeah, it sure can. Um, I was just reading uh, about uh, 24 different um, dry shampoos that were recalled this week because of benzene being found in them. Uh, can you talk us through why, from a cancer perspective, benzene is such a, a shocker and we really, really need to make sure we're not using that? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Benzene. I mean, right up there with the plastics chemicals, it is nasty stuff. Uh, and this is a byproduct of everything from a lot of personal care products, anything that's aerosolized. So all that, you know, sunscreen that you're spraying on your kids, uh, or yourself, um, they found a ton of benzene in those types of products as well. Um, and you know, it's, uh, it tends to be, less of an issue for like hormones than plastics do, but it's a much, I mean, it's, it's a direct line to creating a hostile cancer environment in the body. Um, and, and the problem with a lot of these things is, you know, the oversight for them, you know, they say, Oh, well, you know, we only found traces of it and it's below the safe limit of what all these regulatory bodies have said. The thing that people need to realize as far as the way, chemicals and carcinogens are regulated, at least in the US, I don't know in, the, in, in Australia, I know they're a it's little bit better. Similar. It's quite but similar here. Yeah. They do not do anything to account for a, ongoing accumulation. Mm -mm. Okay. What, what we call bioaccumulation. Okay. Nor and the synergistic. Nor the synergistic. Mm. Right. Exactly. So you've got, you know, the person with that has, you know, the history of lead and mold, and then you also start adding benzene into that bucket or, you know, phthalates or parabens or, or propylene oxide, it, it, yes, there's a synergy, there's a bioaccumulation and, um, and this is all happening while the regulate regulatory bodies are really just looking at in this one sample or this one exposure, this is a safe limit. And so that's where we've gotten into this huge mess with environmental, environmental uh, toxins and exposures and chronic disease. Cause to me, um, that that's the major linchpin. Even if you removed all the environmental issues, you would still see cancer, but there would be very few of them. Mm. It's like crazy how easy it would actually be. Um, but then, you know, it always comes back to GDP theory and infinite growth as a model for success, right? For me, it always comes back to that because we're all on this hamster wheel. And if we actually try to completely change the system, what do we do with those like hundreds of millions of people around the world who then all of a sudden are jobless or don't know how to farm because that's the only other thing that we can do now. Uh, too big yeah. to fail. Too big to <laughs> too fail big is, to is fail. the word. It's the slogan, yeah. Too it's big the word. To fail. It's the world. Um, can I ask you a philosophical question? Uh, we talk about all these fantastic tests that we can do and all this time we can take to work out the puzzle. 
meanwhile, obviously, the dollars are going up and up. Um, as a physician, do you sometimes struggle with the nature of privilege in naturopathic care? The uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to afford to go on that journey in the first place. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's a big, it's a big problem. Um, and it's, you know, it, it really, it, it is more of a, it's more highlighted amongst integrative practitioners and naturopathic medicine, because from the get go, that's all out of pocket, mm. but don't fool yourself. A lot of people are being bankrupt just doing traditional cancer treatments. Oh yes, I agree. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and feeding the insurance monster. Mm. And so, um, and, and not even getting access to what they really need sometimes. So it, it, it's crazy, but we're, we're torn because the only way we can practice the medicine that we know works and that we is, is true to our philosophy and our belief system and how we view the body is, is to not be tethered to the insurance. And, you know, we're at the Reardon clinic where I work here, we're a nonprofit. And, uh, you know, so we're not, we're not out to, you know, try to make any more money than just to try to keep our doors open and keep fueling our, our, uh, our mission, which is, you know, research, patient care and education. But even then it's a lot of money to do this stuff. It's, it's very expensive. Uh, we're cheaper than some of the other cancer clinics you can go to, but even as a nonprofit, this stuff is not cheap. And the last three or four years with, in, with inflation, everything that's going on in the world, it's gotten even more, uh, more expensive. And so, yeah, it puts a real um, limit on who can access this kind of care. And I hate it. I hate it because um, to me, this is, this is the, this should be the medicine of the people. Um, this should be, I, I think there's something very like grassroots about naturopathic medicine. And I feel like one of the tenets of naturopathic medicine is teaching people how to take care of themselves and to not need to be reliant upon a system. Um, obviously cancer care becomes a little bit more complex, but you know, but, but I do feel like over the, over the long haul, when I talk to patients, uh, I feel like ultimately we are probably going to save them money as crazy as that sounds. Um, in terms of number one, not spending money on stuff that they don't need or may not ah, make sense yeah. for them, mm -hmm. but also in terms of, uh, creating more of a, uh, a longevity to not be, like I said, sort of reliant on, you know, the emergency room, if you will. And, and that whole, that whole system. Mm. Uh, but yeah, like, I mean, like you said, there's just some people that literally they can't even get their foot in the door because of the financial barriers. And, um, we got to find solutions. We got to find solutions for that. Yeah. I don't I, have any solutions for it, but we got, I, we got to find it. Yeah. And I, I didn't ask the question to, to, um, insist that a solution be found right here, right now. But I just, I do ask these questions because we're all in this and we can all see that the system needs to be better. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we all recognize that there are a lot of people trying to figure that out. And that brings hope. There's a lot of cynicism and bitterness in integrative and, uh, and naturopathic care at the moment. And I just feel like that's not going to drive us forward 
if we all feel so shitty and jaded that um that that we can't stay open to um how we create a better system for all not a us versus them necessarily forever uh even though it can feel like that sometimes yeah well said i I think for us you know that's why um research has always been a, a a huge focus of our clinic because to me that's how we bridge the gap with with the the more you know uh standard system out there and and get more payers on board and and policymakers on board is, you know, without literally being able to show them evidence and data and research, it, it's hard to get their ear and to get them to look at what you're doing. And so that's why that's, that that's part of one of our uh, main focuses here at the Reardon Clinic. Brilliant. So good. Um, you've mentioned metabolic a couple of times. Uh, we've talked about detoxification. You mentioned hormones as well. So let's have a look at the metabolic implications in in cancer. And uh, again, like there might be cancer patients listening to this right now who need to understand it better from that perspective, but also for those of us who are hoping to not get a cancer diagnosis, um, the the metabolic picture is one that's quite easy to spot in people. I know for me, my son and I, mold was definitely a metabolic thing. We both just put on a ton of weight uh, and it was a real struggle for us. Um, and it, it seems to be that way with cancer. You get the people who lose like 30 kilos and that's when the alarm bells go off, but you get the people who become obese and then that's when the alarm bells go off. So why is that? Well, metabolic dysfunction can have many faces. Uh, it, it's, you know, you can see it in people who are morbidly obese, but you also can see it just as easily in ultra marathoners mm-hmm. and people who have less than 5% body fat. Really? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Why? Absolutely. How? Is that the the visceral organ fat? Like skinny fat? Well, Is that what you're talking about? Yes. So, well, mm-hmm. no, no, not, not necessarily. That that's a that's a face as well of metabolic dysfunction is is skinny fat where you know you can be under underweight, but you know, un, undernourished sort of thing. Um, but ultra marathoners, that becomes much more of a stress-driven metabolic dysfunction. And this is where you know cortisol levels will just be off off the charts. And so um you know, you can eat your way into metabolic dysfunction. You can exercise your way into metabolic dysfunction. You can tox, toxicify your, your way into metabolic dysfunction. There's lots of roads, you know, all roads lead to Rome. There's lots of roads to metabolic dysfunction. Uh, and it's not always just your, your overweight, obese person. Uh, sometimes overweight, obese people don't have metabolic dysfunction. Okay. And this is where, again, until we're able to really look into the soil and the terrain. And, and that's why the labs are so important. You know, I, I've, I've been wrong so many times in terms of trying to judge people by just looking at them in terms of like, Oh yeah, this is what this person's got going on. Mm. It, it, you'll get fooled a lot as a doctor doing that. You get bitten in the butt. You get bitten in the butt. And that's why the <laughs> testing, you know, that's why I tell everybody when they come to us first, I say, okay, we're going to, you know, we may start some IV vitamin C, we may get some mistletoe going, but I'm not really going to, crystallize your plan or tell you what I think we need to do until we see those labs. Because like I said, I mean, you get the, so, oh yeah, I just got done running, you know, a marathon last year. I've been fit my whole life, you know, never been overweight. I, you know, of all my friends, you may have heard this for all my friends. 
I was the last one that was supposed to be sick. I hear that all the time. And it's like, unfortunately, those aren't always, you know, the, the determinants of who gets cancer, who doesn't get cancer or other chronic diseases. And yeah, so- that's it's so interesting, isn't it? Because you think about running and being out in nature on trails and you think, oh my gosh, you know, that is of, and the, the, the mental strength that someone would have, but really it is a life of a chosen extreme in a way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, sometimes the, the avid, you know, workout people and over exerciser people, it's like, there's a reason why they're doing that. You know, and, and there's what, what else are they escaping? Or maybe there's more mental, emotional stressors going on with those people or unprocessed emotions or grief, which also can be a big piece of the puzzle for people with cancer. Um, so it, it, there's usually layers that you have to peel back with these people. And I have, you know, if you walk through my clinic on a daily basis, you'll see a lot of people that, you know, you'd say that person doesn't have cancer. They do. Yeah. Wow. So okay. the metabolic, the metabolic is the health, the metabolic health of the body is so important, but there's no way to just objectively look at people and say that person's got metabolic problems or not. Mm. So Absolutely. if someone, if someone was just going to go to their GP, um, uh, 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 what do you guys call general practitioners? Uh, PCPs. PCPs. Yeah. That's right. Primary care. Yeah. Primary care physician. Exactly. Um, and, and do like some basic metabolic a check-in, if you will, uh, what would a couple of those um, markers that you would put on that test be as a recommendation for someone who just wanted to start just checking in and saying, well, how is my metabolic health if I can't tell by skinny, fat, walking um, 100 kilometres, not? Yeah, actually, you know, even some basic labs can give you a lot of information. You know, there's a lot of people will... um, typically as an annual part of their labs, they'll get their blood counts done and they'll get what they call a chemistry panel or a metabolic panel done. And so uh, there's different labs that are sometimes in those chemistry panels, but you know, you're going to get a look at liver enzymes. You're going to get a look at kidney function. You're going to get a look at protein levels and electrolytes and other enzymes that may tell you about how the met, uh, the metabolism's working. You're going to look at blood sugar. You're going to And then a lot of people are also getting their cholesterol panels checked by their GPs or PCPs. That's another helpful test. Uh, Hemoglobin A1C, which is a uh, a great test for blood sugar control. A a step further, which I really like, which we do in all of our patients, is looking at fasting insulin levels um, because that can be an even more um, clear marker for people going down that metabolic dysfunction or disorder road. Um, I also like to look at homocysteine levels. Um, uh, and then just some general inflammation markers like C-reactive protein, LDH. Um, so, but the key is to, if you find metabolic issues and metabolic disorders, you have to figure out what's causing that. Okay. So, because like we talked about, some people may be eating their way into that metabolic disorder and for telling them those people, if you tell them you need to lose weight and eat a better diet and exercise, Sure, that might help them. There's a lot of people that have metabolic dysfunction where simply changing their diet or exercising more, maybe they need to exercise less. It's not the same recipe to addressing their metabolic dysfunction. Their metabolic dysfunction may be driven by toxins. Mm. And in that case, you need to get the toxins out. Alcohol. Alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, poor sleep habits, uh, stress and emotional trauma, lots of roads that lead to that. So, uh, that's where the work needs to be done. And honestly, the GPs and PCPs, as great as they are, as much as we need them, they're not really equipped to go down those roads with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now you mentioned, uh, mistletoe, uh, a lot of people who have, um, been looking after their health for a while, uh, have started to hear about mistletoe a lot lately. I even heard the other day about a blue food dye. Um, can you help me out with that? It's like a, it's like people blue taking a dye. blue. No, it might not be. I can even edit this out <laughs> if that's just like completely made you go, excuse me, what? Oh, um, met, uh, methylene blue. Yes. Methylene yeah, blue. Methylene. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, not really, uh, not really similar to mistletoe, but yeah, another, another therapy that's out there that can help mm. with mitochondria and, and stuff like that. So, but the yeah. mistletoe, do you guys have mistletoe in, in Australia? Are there practitioners that I've never mistletoe? come across it personally? Um, so I, but I would have to speak to a, a naturopathic friend or two who, who practice to see whether they do use it. Most of the mistletoe use is still concentrated to European countries, mm. which, which is where it's been used for, you know, decades, really. Germany yeah. goes back a hundred years. Mm. Germany uh, just, I mean, they have flown under the radar globally in terms of integrative care, but they've really been people who never let go of nature within a, a common um, everyday practice context. Homeopathy yeah. has stayed uh, and, and well, flourished. Um, vitamin C therapy has been very common. And I think, you know, you, you see this in countries like Germany. You actually also see it in, in countries like, uh, like China, believe it or not, in Japan, where um, they're more concerned about what works rather than what makes money. And so that, that just that, simple starting point and ethos of a medical model opens up so many doors for integrative therapies and talking about diet, nutrition, and all the weird stuff that we do here, um, as opposed to just drugs and surgery. And so that's where you see countries like Germany, where like, thank God, like they're the powers that be the, the people that are running the show there are looking at medicine as not as a for-profit business, but as a, Hey, we have to keep our people healthy and let's use the most non-toxic simplest ways to do that. And yeah, there's probably room for drugs and surgeries and stuff, but let's, let's leave those for the last resort. Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's the mindset you see in a lot of these countries where, where things like mistletoe and nutrition and homeopathy and, and natural supplements and acupuncture and and all these so-called alternative therapies are more so the front line, you know, like, let's try these things first. Yeah. And then if we need to use the more heroic stuff like drugs and surgery, it's there, but don't mm. start with that. Yeah. It's like that fantastic meme that floats around and you see it every now and then and says, okay, uh, prioritize getting eight hours sleep, uh, eat your eat whole foods and ditch the processed foods. Uh, go for a walk every day, call a friend, 
um, and do some community service and come back in three weeks and tell me how you feel. And uh, like the cue to actually go and do that thing versus the collect my prescription is like there's no one in that one and there's like a whole line of people in the prescription. Exactly. Another great meme. Ah, we've really got to realise that it's about embedding a new system, not just out there to solve all our problems, but within ourselves as well. We've gotten lost along the way. We have. And, you know, we've been, you know, I, it's, we've been seduced into this convenience and, and modern culture uh, to just look at medicine as like this transaction that we have with these white coats and, and hospitals and, you know, and there's no sense of, of prevention or proactive uh, creating health in people. Just like we go back to that and I mean, like we're not setting up a barrier. We're just waiting for people to fall off the cliff. Mm, 100%. So, yeah. It's, yeah. uh, but you know, it, it's going to take a real, uh, a real monumental shift in, in the way that we look at things, at least here in the U S and it sounds like in Australia as well to, to make that happen. Mm, yeah. You've mentioned emotional, spiritual, a couple of times, both, uh, in the diagnosis process and exploration of the puzzle, as well as in, uh, a healing recovery journey. Um, what is the research telling us at the moment about the significance of uh, emotional stress and trauma in an eventual cancer picture? Yeah, it's uh, the, the research is interesting because um, I think we've got plenty of understanding in terms of like from a biochemical and physiological standpoint of how your thoughts and emotions affect your physical body, right? I mean, even going back to Candace Pert, Molecules of Emotion, great book. If no one, if you guys haven't read it, but this was discovered back, you know, decades ago that, you know, we in in the lab, in true science, we've we understand the mechanism by which your thoughts and emotions affect your your physical body. Um, and so the science is there, the understanding's there. Where we've really been stuck in neutral is how do we implement strategies and interventions. Once we know that there's a problem with someone, we're still not connecting the dots clinically um, to help people, you know, because there's no prescription for it. There's not like I can just give you a pill. It's, I can't tell you to go do this. Some people, you know, their mental emotional blocks or what's causing that, that uh, unhealthy environment for them is past trauma. Some of it's um, a lack of purpose. Some of it's they're in a toxic relationship. Some of it is, you know, grieving, you know, grieving a love, a loved one or an animal, whatever. And so there's, it's still very complex and tough. And, and we don't, you know, we don't have all the answers here when it comes to that stuff, but uh, it's getting talked about more, especially in the integrative circles that, that, that I, that I'm in. Um, I think we're still kind of stumbling through what are the best ways to approach these things. I think we are good at talking about it. You know, you and I are talking about it right now. I talk about it all the time. I still don't have like a plug and play way of helping people deal with their mental, emotional issues. Mm. And it's but, almost like a, a, a skill again, that we have a, a, as communities have fractionated, as we've gone more into these nuclei family um, structures where everything has to work and be perfect. Otherwise I've got nothing because I don't have that community plug in. Like it feels like there's a lot 
of um, skill building that needs to happen in um, just getting better at talking and expressing and feeling safe to do so in our intimate relationships. Uh, there's a reason a bazillion books are being written about it, right? People cannot figure it out too well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and these things are making it hard too. Um, you know, the, the being online all, all day and, and, you know, that becoming the dominant form of communication for people, you know, I, I'm guilty of it too. I mean, you know, it's so much easier to send a text than to call someone, uh, or set up a, a coffee date and, and go talk with someone face to face. And so, yeah, the interpersonal relationships, the community, uh, that's all part of it. Right. Um, because, you know, trauma and abuse and stress and all this stuff, these are not new problems to human beings. I, I think what we're missing is, is proper pathways and uh, uh, space and, and ways of safety to be able to discuss things, talk about them, be with our community, still be accepted by our community, despite whatever things we've been through. Uh, we're losing that. And so um, it's, it, it, we, uh, we got to start making some fundamental changes because these things aren't going anywhere. No, um, they're not. Yeah. Uh, people need to find their, their tribes and their communities and, you know, and, and, and their, their, their family dynamics are still so important. Uh, and that's one of the first things we try to get people to start looking at when we look at that part of their terrain is like, okay, like, you know, how many close friends do you have? How many family members, you know, are, are with you? What does your support group look like? Because, you know, I can tell people, I can pretty much tell you, you're like, you're only as strong as, as your network. Right. Uh, and, and that, that sometimes is the biggest determinant of how far you'll go, what type of success you'll have with a, with a disease like cancer is how many people, how much help do you have? Mm. So true. Uh, someone uh, who was actually giving a TED talk on the same day at the event that I was a part of was talking about divorce. And she said, we get married in community and we divorce alone. And I really felt like there was a parallel that could be drawn with uh, chronic illness, illness, Everyone's there for our best days and they're ready to celebrate when the champagne's flowing and the music's playing. Uh, when the sh shit hits fan, here it is again. Uh, it, people feel awkward. People don't know what to say. Uh, I remember when I was sick for a whole year before I figured out what was up with me, um, I almost wished I had something diagnosable so I could be put in a pretty little box and someone would send me a basket or something. Like, <laughs> I felt so alone and yeah. I've been able to let go of that and unpack it with people. Um, but I, I feel like, again, we need more preventative, uh, more safety in talking about the tough times and, you know, like forget this whole you're only as good as the six positive people you surround yourself with. You want to be with the people who are there in the, in the really crappy times in, as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That, well, that's when you find out who your real people mm. are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So, you want the people who are strong enough to meet the lows as well as the highs uh, in your circle. I think that's really important. Yeah. And that's where I, we get a tremendous um, uh, boost from, you know, when we have all our, when we have patients here at our clinic, you know, there almost becomes like a little tribe that forms amongst the, the other patients that are here. Cause they're all going through, you know, similar type journeys. And, uh, 
a lot of patients find strength through that. We've had some patients that have come to us and they, you know, they don't have family, they don't have a significant other, they come to us alone. And then while they're here, they develop this whole support network of other patients. And, and it's really cool to see. Yeah, nice. So you actually end up finding a new community and network through exactly. new experiences. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, can we talk about a couple of your patients? Like, obviously not names, um, but just how inspired you are by being able to do the work you do in terms of how that plays out for people in the real world going through some of the crazy statistical situations of like now one in three, one in two in some cancers by the time we're 80. Um, tell us something good. Well, we've seen, you know, a, a several, you know, just blatant medical miracles happen at our clinic here. Um, everything from stage four pancreatic cancer that, you know, the gentleman that came to me, I mean, you know, if you would have saw him the first time I saw him, he had been sent home on hospice, was told he had maybe a week or two to live. Uh, that was two and a half years ago now. And he has no evidence of disease. Um, he was paralyzed below the waist uh, from a MRSA infection, had stage four pancreatic cancer. Just, you know, even I looked at, him, I was like, I don't know if I can help you. Uh, and uh, his wife was very, you know, very adamant, like, well, thank you for saying that, but we want to try. And uh, so we, we tried and we kept trying. And one day after another, he slowly got better. And, you know, this was without any modern, you know, medicine or, or chemotherapy. He was beyond and, that stage, right? Of yeah, being able to he didn't to have that. any other options. The, the mm. traditional doctors wouldn't touch him. They said, mm. I got nothing left for you. And so um, he went back about a year and a half later and saw his doctor and uh, said, she just looked white as a ghost. <laughs> It was yeah. just like, but at the same time, she, you know, was like tearful and like happy for him. And, you know, was like almost speechless, basically. Mm. And what was it for him? Like what was in that soup that you discovered that was really going to move the needle? He was interesting because um, I truly to this day, I mean, I, I don't know if I can fully explain what happened in his body short of just a miracle. But one of the things that was interesting about his case was this. MRSA infection that he had in his spine, which was again, causing the paralysis and, um, the infectious disease. I mean, he had been on IV antibiotics and antifungals and all kinds of stuff. They were, they'd done everything they could to try to clear this MRSA infection wasn't in clearing. Um, we did several, uh, injections of ozone right into his spine, uh, or right around his spine. Um, we were doing it more so just to see if we could help with some of the pain he was having. Um, cause you know, we use ozone for joint injections and chronic pain and stuff like that. So I was literally doing it, not thinking it would have this systemic effect, but, um, after about a series of four of those injections into that area, his pain got better. He started like literally has started wiggling his toes, you know, his motors, his, his, his motor activity started just creeping up his legs slowly. Every time he'd come back to the clinic, every couple of days, he was like, Oh yeah. Now I can feel it up to my ankle and now I can move, you know, below my knee. And then it was just this, this crazy progress that was happening. Um, and I have to think that that ozone gas getting into, uh, that area where the infection really was concentrated. And we, we know about what's called an abscopal effect in medicine. And this is where the immune system, if it gets triggered high enough in one area of the body, it can have a systemic effect throughout the body. We see this sometimes with mistletoe, 
Uh, you can also see it with things like Coley's toxins. So this is a, a known phenomenon, but I think that's what happened with, with this gentleman uh, is we created an abscopal effect where what we did in that area of his spine turned on all the lights in his body and his immune system like woke up and then, and then it was just, it was this continuous gradual, but continuous improvement day in and day out from there on for about six straight months until he was up and out of his wheelchair. And uh, eventually we ended up doing some, some imaging and scans and sure enough, there was no cancer left in the body. Wow. So for that patient, it was about finding the light switch and what that, what that was maybe going to be. It was, uh, it, it, if we didn't get on top of that infection, I don't think his body was going to be able to heal because it was such a, you know, such a bad uh, uh, infection. And it was, it was so resistant at that point, which is, you know, you hit something with enough antibiotics and antifungals and things like, it's just going to brew, just continue to brew very resistant bugs in there. And, and that's where the infectious disease doctors were just like, we've got nothing else to try. And so, but that ozone, that stuff, sometimes, you know, I call it magic gas and it, it can work magic sometimes. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah wow. Uh, that ozone is used on um, all sorts of detoxifying cases, right? I've seen it used in the mold community by a few people. Um, it's, it's got a, a great affinity for, for detox, but also for busting up biofilms because a lot of people don't understand that toxins oftentimes are uh, layered in with pathogens. And so if you don't kill the bacteria or the fungus or the parasites that are creating the little biofilm, the toxins won't come out. Mm. And so how does that mechanism work with ozone? What? Well, it's, yeah, it, it's sterilized. I mean, they use it in medical sterilization. I mean, you know, a lot of the hospital equipment that you see get you like that gets sterilized with ozone. They use it in dental procedures to sterilize the oral cavity. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a new discovery. <laughs> mm, you just don't uh, want to be breathing it in. So is that why we're doing the, I don't want to breathe it directly into the lungs. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I mean, we shoot it into all other parts of the body up the sinuses in the ears, you can do mm -hmm. rectal insufflation, vaginal insufflation. We do injections and then we give it IV as well. Right. So can I just ask, like, I'm, I'm trying to understand because ENT, ear, nose, throat, um, lungs attached. So if we don't want to be breathing in ozone, how come we can use it in a sinus treatment? Well, um, ozone is interesting in that uh, it, it dissipates within a matter of a few seconds after hitting a tissue. Okay. And so when you shoot up the nose, like it's going to get into that, that sinus tissue uh, before it gets to the lungs and it's going to dissipate. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't, it stops working, but when it comes in contact with that tissue, it generates what are called ozonides. And these are actually what, where the magic happens with it. And so that has more of that local effect there without getting down in the lungs. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Thanks for explaining that. Cause I was like, I, I actually yeah. need to understand this on a personal level. Um, yes. No, it's Drew. a great way because you know, with your, like talking about mold, a lot of people mold is sequestered in the sinuses. Okay. And that's where these people with chronic sinus infections that, Oh yeah, I have to take an antibiotic twice a year and it kind of helps, but it never really goes away. You've got mold up there or some kind of fungus and you got to get some ozone up there. 
Well, that was very helpful, doctor, because we, um, my son gets a nosebleed every time we are somewhere even remotely musty or water damaged, even if we're just inspecting a house for five minutes. So I really feel like the there's some, up there. some underdealt with stuff up there. Um, so that has been extremely helpful on a personal level. Uh, and I'm very glad it was helpful to your incredible stage four pancreatic cancer patient, because that really is such a beautiful uh, example of how you find the right flick to switch the switch to flick and then it can set off this incredible healing chain reaction. What yeah, can you and share? I tell people, I tell people all the time that, you know, that's, I don't, I would never tell a patient, Oh, like, this is what I expect. You know, if, if they came to me in a similar situation, but what I think it illustrates is just that there's, there's always hope. There's always hope. And we shouldn't count anybody out. Even when it looks like maybe there's nothing we can do to help. If they're willing to, if they want to fight and they're willing to try we should give them that, that chance. Yeah. Can you share one more before we wrap up? Oh boy. There's so many, um, you know, I think speaking from a, um, <clears throat> from a toxic toxicity standpoint, because, um, you, your, your channel is low tox life. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, maybe a case about toxicities. Um, we had a patient come to us, um, maybe about a year and a half ago with, uh, non Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it's pretty well known that, you know, glyphosate uh, is a, a major risk factor, a known carcinogen, and has been fairly strongly linked to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. There's lots of court cases going on and, and settlements that are happening. But this patient had non-Hodgkin lymphoma. He was in his 50s um, and had gone through the traditional treatments, which, by the way, standard chemotherapy and non-Hodgkin lymphoma you're looking at maybe a 60 to 65% cure rate with that. Okay. So, so that's, that's not that bad of odds. However, this just gentleman's had been through that and and it didn't get rid of all the disease and the disease started growing again, despite that um, he was being recommended another line of chemotherapy, but he'd been pretty badly beaten up uh, from the first round. And so we put him through the testing and lo and behold, we found an enormous amount of glyphosate in this man. Enormous wow. Amount. When, and oh, can you just share, so what would be an upper limit of normal? And then what was his? So in the test that we run, which is through Great Plains, uh, an upper limit is 2.5. His was greater than 20. They don't, the scale does, it just, if it's above 20, it just says greater than 20. Okay. But like for, for someone, I would say anything over five is extremely high. His was above 20. I've only seen maybe a few patients that were above 20. But anyways, he didn't really want to move into chemotherapy. Uh, he was like, I want to go all in on integrative therapies. And so we found out he had this major glyphosate issue. We put him through our detox protocols, lots of ozone, um, lots of binders, lots of saunas, lots of alpha lipoic acid and glutathione. And lo and behold, about six months later, uh, we actually repeated his test at about three months and it was down, I think around nine. And then at six months, it was down to less than one. And so we, the glyphosate's great, okay? But if if we don't if we work on that and the cancer still explodes and, and, and gets worse, it doesn't mean anything, right? But this person, his cancer, what, what was left after the chemotherapy completely went away on his scans. Actually, I take that back. It didn't completely go away. But in lymphoma, what we go off of is more of a PET scan measure, which is how hypermetabolic those lesions are. 
his lesions basically went down to zero hypermetabolic uh, activity. So they were there, but they weren't active. Okay. And this is what we sometimes see with integrative therapies is that we don't necessarily, that cancer doesn't necessarily go away, but we can force it into a dormant state, meaning we can impact and influence the environment around it enough to where it's like, okay, we're stopping right here. You're not getting any bigger and we're shutting off your fuel supply. We're not going to destroy you completely, but you've been surrounded and you're going to be contained. And so that's what we oftentimes see when we approach things more through the terrain. And so that is what happened to this gentleman's cancer and all of his markers, LDH and tumor markers and everything went down to normal. And uh, it's been almost a year now and, and, you know, still has not had any recurrence or, or reawakening of his cancer. Right. And uh, what was his glyphosate exposure? Was he like gardening with Roundup liberally? He grew up in he... Iowa, which is glyphosate central uh, farmland as far as the eye can see, you know, and he grew up in agriculture, worked in factories, had a farm of his own for a while. Yeah. I mean, to me, even just seeing his diagnosis, I was like, well, glyphosate is certainly something we got to rule out. But then seeing his agricultural background, knowing he's from Iowa, I mean, it was that was one patient where you know, I said earlier, you can't judge a book by its cover. He was pretty clear to see from the beginning uh, as far as like what was going on with him. But but yeah, getting that I mean, essentially getting that glyphosate out of his body. We we didn't necessarily get rid of the cancer. We stopped him from making more cancer which is what the chemotherapy really can't do. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's about creating a new healthy terrain. Yeah. So good. I mean, I'm sure you have a thousand more stories, uh, 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 interesting case studies, and I really encourage everybody to follow you on Insta. Um, you're really generous with what you share and, and just breaking down new research that's coming up. Uh, it's really important that we stay with that research because that is where the hope is, right? There is so much hope and positivity in what's coming out in the research now. Um, with so much more to learn. I mean, as cool yeah. as everything is that that we're doing and learning now, I still feel like there's we're just scratching the surface. Yeah, that's it. And I, I'm really thankful there are doctors like you who are saying, you know, to patients, how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Uh, you know, where are you working now? Have you ever noticed any mold? Do you remember being bitten by a tick? Like these, all these questions really matter in terms you of- You have helping. to be curious. Yeah. You, you have do. to be curious and you have to ask a lot of questions because um, that, I mean, to me, that's part of being a doctor. Mm. I still remember the first time I ever went to see a naturopath. I was 28 years old. Uh, the antibiotics had stopped working on strep throat, which I had had uh, recurrently for years. And it was just out of sheer chance that a girlfriend said, have you ever thought of seeing a naturopath? Because I would have never heard of one, maybe would have never seen one, but I did, did that week. And I remember thinking after an hour of being bombarded by so many questions, like we haven't done anything yet. That was what my conventional, it was like, when are we going to get Where's to the my part prescription? Where you, you give me the thing that's going to make this go away? And no, 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 no. I was there to learn. I was there to talk, to listen, to learn, uh, and to change. And I think that's really the invitation uh, that opening up our scope of, of care offers 
people to to talk less, listen more, learn something and see what invitation there is to change about what we're doing that's not working. Two ears and one mouth. So listen twice as much as you talk. That's 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 what I was taught as a kid. I try to still adhere to that. But um, but yeah, I mean, if if you're not allowing patients to tell their story, first of all, telling your story is therapeutic in and of itself. Um, but if you can't allow that space and time and safety for people to tell you everything that's going on, I, I make it a point to ask my patients, why do you think you got cancer? Mm. And uh, wow, that's a powerful question. That um, a lot of times catches people off guard. But uh, but I'll tell you what that 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 takes the conversation in a very interesting place. And to me, that's, I focus on that stuff just as much as I do what's going on in the labs. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for the work you do, Dr. Lucas. Uh, an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thanks for having me, Alex. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social, on Instagram, at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a Lotox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Lotox Club for just $49 Australian per year which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro and about 25 pounds, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.